Good morning. Don't y'all think it's a nice day to stay in and watch a movie? I am so glad you didn't. But I do think it's a perfect movie day. And so it made me think of one of my favorite movies growing up, and I'll be honest, it still is one of my favorite movies, is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. So I feel like there are some of you in this room who have not seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, so I'm going to give you a little background about it. So Indiana Jones is an archaeologist in the 1930s, and his specialty is biblical archaeology. And his um, passion is to um, research and find things like the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy Grail. Now keep in mind, it seems very real, but Indiana Jones is a fiction movie. So as we're talking about him pursuing the Ark of the Covenant or the Holy Grail, we do have to remember that this is fiction. So the thing with Indiana Jones is he's passionate about this, and he's kind of a a purist in the movie, which means we'll call him the good guys. So he is a purist who loves uncovering these um, ancient artifacts, but he wrestles with uncovering them and learning more about them, but also keeping them hidden from the bad guys, keeping them hidden from the group of people who would like to find these artifacts for their own promotion and personal wealth. And so he is passionate about doing this. And so at the end of the last crusade, there is this epic scene. So the good guys and Indiana Jones and the bad guys find themselves in this temple. And in the temple, they make their way through a series of clues and hints and traps and all the amazing action movie items. They make their way back to a chamber where the Holy Grail is hidden amongst dozens of others. And there is a knight who is, who is in this chamber. And there is a knight. He has been in there 700 years See, fiction. He has been in there 700 years guarding the Holy Grail. And so when Indiana Jones and the bad guys get into this chamber, this knight looks at them and he says, now that you're here, you must make a choice. And he says, you must choose, but choose wisely. And now you know where this epic meme has come from that you have seen everywhere. It is from Indiana Jones. And he tells them, you must choose wisely. And now, I will tell you, this movie was made in 1989, so it has all the predictability of a solid 80s movie, so don't be sad when I spoil the end for you. What happens is the bad guys choose poorly, and the good guys choose wisely. Y'all don't even have to watch it, but you still really should. So... The bad guys come in and they look at all of the chalices in there and they think this is the cup, right? They know that this is the cup of Christ. And so they choose the one that's covered in jewels and gold and looks very expensive because wouldn't this be the cup of a king, of a God, of a Christ, a cup full of of pride and grandeur? But we know that's not right. And then Indiana Jones comes And he knows who Christ is. And so he chooses a cup that would belong to the son of a carpenter. A cup that's ceramic and worn. A cup that's full of purpose, but that exudes humility and servanthood. You see, Indiana Jones, he could choose wisely, 
because he knew full well the character of the Christ. And that is where we find ourselves today. Having all of these choices in front of us, with James telling us about wisdom and all of the stuff that he has told us to this point in James, and basically what James is coming down to is he's saying that genuine faith knows who God is. And if genuine faith knows who God is, genuine faith can choose wisely. Genuine faith knows who God is and therefore can choose wisely. Now the bad guys, they had wisdom. They had earthly wisdom. They made this long, treacherous journey and um, found the temple of the Holy Grail. But when it mattered, their choice resulted in death. And Indiana Jones, he had wisdom from above. Um, He made it also to this temple and all the way back to the chamber. But when it mattered, his choice resulted in life. Now, have you ever found yourself with those types of decisions, perhaps, where there are a dozen options in front of you? And maybe it seems like out of all of these options, there could be a good element in all of them. Maybe it's applying for a different position at your company or moving your child to a new school, deciding whether or not to put your parents in in a care facility, what to study, who to marry, where to live. We have these decisions everywhere. Now, for me, a few years ago, I found myself in a place where I had the opportunity to um, choose to stay at home with my daughter, to go back to work in the corporate world in finance, or to take a job in ministry. Now, all three of those options had God-glorifying aspects to them, but I needed not just wisdom from the world, but the wisdom of God. And as James is writing to the Christ followers, he's saying the same thing. He knows that they will be faced with different choices and different decisions. And so he wanted to point them toward heavenly wisdom. And so in this passage, at the end of chapter 3, in the beginning of chapter 4, James outlines basically what happens when we learn of who God is and then we how we can make wise decisions. And so today we're going to take the time to walk through three different things. First, the characteristics of heavenly and earthly wisdom. Second, we'll look at the steps to attaining that heavenly wisdom. And third, we'll um, take some time to examine where we are in this journey. Now, one way that you may want to keep track of this earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom is similar to what you did in your homework, and that is to make a good old-fashioned tea chart. Now, I had my tea chart out, and it just is pretty basic. It is a tea with heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom on each side. And my daughter saw this, and she was like, are y'all learning about ones and tens and hundreds? Because that is what apparently what a tea chart is for. So I'm going to ask your grace in saying that we're not going to use the tea chart for ones and tens and hundreds, but let's use it for heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom. And as we go through this study, you can make notes on each side so that it's like you have a little decision matrix to go by. So if you want to do that, just make the tea chart in your book and you can keep track of everything really easily that way. Now, if you have done that, I want you to stop, and I want you to think. I've been going really fast. We've been talking about wisdom and choices. And so I want you to think about a choice that you have in front of you. Or one that you have perhaps made recently. 
think of something that's in front of you right now. Now, it could be a various gravity, but we want to choose something a little weighty, um, not something like if we choose pumpkin spice latte or whether the weather is appropriate for peppermint mocha. That's not a choice. We know the answer is peppermint mocha. <laughs> but is there a decision that is a little weighty that you are facing right now? And if there is, I want you to just kind of jot it on your page, maybe in the corner, just a couple of notes, just to help you remember what that is. And then we're going to come back to this at the end. Okay? All right. Back to wisdom. So I think something that we can all agree on is that wisdom is a very good thing. St. Augustine was a philosopher in the fourth century, and St. Augustine said the greatest good is wisdom. We know that it is a great good because there is an entire section of the Bible dedicated to wisdom literature, the books of wisdom that are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. In Jody's intro of James, she told us that James is the only New Testament book of wisdom. And then a few weeks ago, when we were in James 1, we defined wisdom, and simply we defined it as the practical living out of knowledge. Do you remember that? We defined wisdom as the practical living out of knowledge. You see, where knowledge is information, wisdom is an invitation. And so we're at that point in the scripture where James isn't necessarily telling us anything new. We're evaluating all of the things that he has already told us. And so James doesn't start this section by asking, what is wisdom? Because James and the people to whom he was writing, they were well aware of wisdom because they had read it out of the wisdom literature that I just referenced. And so instead, he says to them, who among you is wise? Who among you is wise? And then he goes on to say, let me help you figure out who among you is wise. And he shows us how to tell the difference. In James 3.13, it says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So right there, we already have two attributes to put in our heavenly wisdom column, right? Good works and meekness. Another word for meekness, the NIV uses humility. Basically, it just means less of me. It means a, a coming under. Humility is a freedom from pride. Now, this is the last time you'll see this chart. So now it's up to you to make list if you want. Hint, it's right here. You can go back and list it. So... Now we have defined this. James has defined um, first how we're going to look for wisdom, and then he goes and talks about earthly wisdom. Look in James 3, 14 through 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So first, James lists the characteristics of earthly wisdom, jealousy, Selfish ambition, boasting, and lying. And then he lists the source of these things. Earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Earthly and unspiritual, demonic, those are basically the three foes of man that we have as Christ followers. The three things that we are always warring against. The world, the flesh, the devil. 
And so what James is saying, he's not necessarily saying that earthly wisdom is coming from the devil. His point is what all three of those have in common is they are not of God, not of God, and not of God. And he says that when you are making choices that stem from this source, the result is going to be the same thing, not of God. It's going to be confusion, which is not God because God is peace. It will be every vile practice, which is not God because God is full of righteousness. And so the results of this type of wisdom are not of God, not of God, not of God. And you see, this stems directly from our own selves and our own pride. We come by this naturally because Adam and Eve in the garden long ago, when they first sinned in the original sin, it was the belief that they knew better than God. And so now we carry that original sin with this idea somehow that we can have our own thoughts that are better than God's. And that may sound funny for me to say that, but then why do we make some of the choices we do? Any time that we are taking God off of his throne as sovereign Lord and putting ourselves in that place, that is pride and that is sin. And so earthly wisdom can only result in one thing, and that is sin, if we make it about more of us and less of God. So let's leave that. Let's go back to heavenly wisdom. That makes us a lot happier. Look at James 3, 7, and 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So if you look carefully at this list, you will see that James has previously mentioned all of these in his book. Remember, Alice taught us that genuine faith produces good fruits, good works. Sissy taught us that genuine faith is not partial. Genuine faith does not have bias. James is referencing everything else. And as a matter of fact, James is being a little sneaky right here. He's making a little memory helper to help his readers remember what heavenly wisdom looks like. If you look at the original language, you will see that all of these characteristics, when they're listed, they all have a similar sound at the beginning. So you may have seen pastors, or maybe some of us in this room, make three points that start with the same letter to help you remember. We did not invent that. James was doing that 2,000 years ago. So James created this little memory helper. So not that, that they would just have to stop and go, what does it say about heavenly wisdom? But instead, he is producing in them a lifestyle of wisdom so that they can remember these things easily. And so as they are going in their lives, they can make choices that reflect heavenly wisdom. So now I want to stop and look at this list. If you look carefully, you'll see that these are the characteristics of Jesus himself. Pure, peaceable, gentle, but also open to reason. Remember scripture says that Jesus humbled himself before man. He became like a servant. He submitted himself to his father, become obedient even unto death. 
So look at your list if you've made one. Earthly wisdom is wisdom that lacks God. Heavenly wisdom is wisdom that is of God. Earthly wisdom is wisdom that thinks of me. And heavenly wisdom is wisdom that thinks of us, of a community, of the kingdom. Earthly wisdom says, I know better. And heavenly wisdom says, God knows better. Earthly wisdom is pride. It's me. It's me alone. And heavenly wisdom is humility that says God is everything. Earthly wisdom takes. Heavenly wisdom is open-handed and gives. Earthly wisdom capitalizes and manipulates on privilege. And heavenly wisdom takes privilege and gives it away to those who don't have it. You see, genuine faith knows God's character. Genuine faith knows who God is and can therefore choose wisely. So now continuing on in his comparison of good and evil, of um, heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom, we move to the next chapter. So um, James has been showing us what heavenly and earthly wisdom look like. And now he's going to show us what it really looks like when we live out earthly wisdom. James 4 says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he made to dwell within us? You see, James is saying a lot of words, but he's saying one really simple thing. He's saying that we can lust and war and covet and fight, but there's one reason we don't have what we desire. It's because we don't ask. And when we do ask, we're asking out of our fleshly passions and not out of the Holy Spirit that is living within us. You see, earthly wisdom promotes me. Heavenly wisdom promotes God. Earthly wisdom is about boasting that we have done something great. We have done it ourselves. My childhood pastor once said, to reconcile all of this, he said, if it can burn, it wasn't yours in the first place. And if it is yours, it is a gift God wanted to give you. Heavenly wisdom knows who God is. But see, our mentality instead is is to do what we have been taught our entire lives, and that's to look out for number one, to put myself first so that I can be satisfied. And now hear me say that this is very different than than caring for your soul or setting aside time for yourself. But when you do care for your soul, are you caring for it yourself? Are you abiding in the one who knows your soul? Is it pride saying, I can do this and I know best? Or is it humility saying, I need you, Lord, because you know best? You know, there are some decisions we don't have to put to this earthly, heavenly versus earthly wisdom test. Do I love that person well? Yes, always yes. We know that. 
Do I Netflix and chill? Do I come to Bible study? Always Bible study. You always come and be with your sisters and follow the word of God. But there are some decisions that are difficult. Some decisions that we desperately need help from above. You know, when I was trying to decide what um, decision I was going to make about staying home or going back to work, there were lots of really good options and there were really good things about all three of those. But, but I had to look at my motives. I had to look at what was best not for me, but for my community. Heavenly wisdom asks God what is best and then waits on him. Heavenly wisdom says to ask God what he desires and then genuine faith puts it into action. So hear me loud and clear. I am not standing up here to tell you that I am of supreme heavenly wisdom because anyone in my inner circle will know that that is not always the case. But I feel like I got it right with this one. (laughs) You see, in 2015, after praying and open-handedly asking God what his desire for me was, I ended up working part-time at IBC on our women's ministry team. And I'm very thankful for that. But you know, five years before that, the right choice that God directed me toward was working in finance in corporate America. Now, four years before that, the right answer was that I was to work full-time in nonprofit and go to seminary. Because you see, our circumstances change and we change. And so our choice won't always be the same. But what doesn't change is who God is and who his character is. And so genuine faith knows who God is, what his character is. And though our choices may look different from time to time, God never changes and we can always trust him to bestow his wisdom upon us. Genuine faith that knows that we can trust God. And he's the one and the only one who can rescue us from the pride of self. Now we have thoroughly examined the characteristics of heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom, and now we have to live it out. So are you all ready to just leave and follow heavenly wisdom on a regular basis? We all want to, but when I look at that list, I feel number one, overwhelmed, and number two, completely inadequate because I know that that is not a lifestyle that I can maintain. But James knew that too. And so James gives us three steps, three, prom- three, um, three steps and a promise on what's going to happen if we follow them. And Jody gave us a little preview of these last week. It's James 4, 7 through 10. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and well. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So, if we are truly to have heavenly wisdom, if we are truly to have humility and not pride, there's three things we must do. Number one, purify our hearts. Number two, draw near to God. And number three, humble ourselves. Now, the first one, purify our hearts, this actually has three aspects to it. It has the outer life, the inner life, and our emotions. So in the outer life, he says, wash your hands, which means change your conduct, You know, why do we wash our hands before we eat or after going to the restroom? It's to wash the germs of the world off of us because we wash our hands because we eat with our hands. And so 
the germs of the world, if we don't wash our hands, the germs of the world will become our sustenance. And so James is saying, change your behavior so that the world is not becoming your sustenance. So the second part of this is the inner life. He says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. See, genuine faith knows that God is everything. It knows that we, we will always struggle being in this world, but not of this world. But when we begin in our hearts to understand the overwhelming love and goodness of God, the righteousness that he has, that he cannot even look on our sin, the knowledge that we have fallen short of his glory, that we have not loved God well, that we have put ourselves on the throne and we deserve death. When our inner lives begin to understand that, then our outer lives can change. One of my favorite authors, Andrew Murray, he is a 19th century South African pastor and author. He describes it this way. He says, it is not a something which we bring to God or he bestows. It is simply the sense of entire nothingness, which comes when we see how truly God is all and in which we make way for God to be all. When the creature who's us, when we recognize, when we realize that this is the true nobility and consents to be with his will, his mind, and his affections, the form, the vessel in which the life and glory of God are to work and manifest themselves. So basically when we give everything, then we see that humility is simply acknowledging the truth of his position as creature and yielding to God in his place. When we realize who we are compared to who God is, then we will understand what heavenly wisdom looks like. You see, when we realize that, our hearts can be transformed. And the fact is, this isn't work we have to do by ourselves. The Holy Spirit is always within us, always working. So when we feel overwhelmed with the task that's in front of us, the Holy Spirit will remind us that we're not alone. The Holy Spirit will convict us of the pride and the choices we've made, and then we can confess that, and then we are emptied of that sin. Now, the third part of purify is our emotions. And this is when James says, now you have to grieve, mourn, and will, and change your laughter to mourning and joy to gloom. Now, this could be really confusing, Because just a couple chapters ago, he said to count everything as joy, right? So what this means is that true repentance is more than just confessing our sin. It's knowing that deep, deep within our hearts, we have wronged our Savior. It is knowing that deep within our hearts, we have chosen the shallow, temporary joys of the world instead of the deep, abiding joy that a savior is offering us. And so when we realize that true repentance comes, when we see that we have not loved the Lord well, then we can grieve and mourn and wail. We can take the shallow things that seem to satisfy us and turn from those to the deep things that will satisfy us forever. So in summary, basically, to purify ourselves is that we need to empty ourselves of ourselves. 
of our will, of our pride. And this is not to say that you need to change who you are. God glorifies in who you are. But he desires to be Lord of every aspect of your life. He yearns jealously over the spirit because he wants to be with us. And he wants every aspect of you. And so when we empty ourselves of ourselves, we have to be filled back up with something. And that is the next step, to draw near to God. What a beautiful invitation and an incredible promise. We can put God back on the throne and be filled with him instead. A commentator puts it this way, what it looks like to walk with him day by day. As we draw near to him and allow him to draw near to us, a marvelous thing takes place. Jesus refers to this phenomenon as abiding in him and he in us. As we are possessed more and more by Christ himself, his character increasingly supplants ours. We become more and more like him as we die to self and are filled with the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit flows from our lives. We become more and more like Jesus, including more and more humble, and then his humility becomes ours. That is how we draw near to God. And then we have the third step. He says to humble yourselves. Now, in essence, this is really not something that we can do ourselves. But I want you to hear from Andrew Murray again, who puts it this way. This is a little lengthy, and he's a little 19th century, but hang with me. All right, the command is clear, humble yourself. That does not mean that it is your work to conquer and cast out the pride of your nature and to form within yourself the lowliness of the holy Jesus. No, this is God's work. The very essence of that exaltation, wherein he lifts you up into the real likeness of the beloved son. What the command does mean is this. Take every opportunity of humbling yourself before God and man. Accept with gratitude everything that God allows from within or without, from friend or enemy, in nature or in grace, to remind you of your need for humbling and to help you do it. The promise is divine and sure. He that humbleth himself shall be exalted. So see that you do the one thing God asks. Humble yourself before God. God will see that he does the one thing he has promised. He will give you more grace and he will exalt you in due time. So you see, we purify ourselves. We confess the Holy Spirit convicts us. We repent and then we draw near to God. And you see, when we know who God is, and when we know who we are, humility is a natural response, and we can choose wisely. So remember our friend Indiana Jones, who chose wisely. He chose the correct cup because he knew the character of God. And the cup he chose was not one of earthly wisdom, of selfish selfish ambition, of the pursuit of fleshly passions, It wasn't pride because he knew to choose the cup that was most like Jesus. Humble, forsaking self, and gentle. A cup that wasn't full of grandeur but knew its purpose and its creator full well. So as far as genuine faith goes, how are you doing? 
Remember that decision that you wrote down, that choice you have to make? We're going to spend some time thinking about that. Now, maybe you don't have an exact choice that you need to make, but maybe there is a lifestyle of heavenly wisdom that you need to cultivate. You see, this practice of purify yourself, draw near to God, and humble yourself, this is not a one-time thing. This becomes an everyday thing. And so we're going to do this together. So you can sit back and close your eyes if you promised that you had coffee. Or you can journal to follow along. But we're going to take a time of reflection right now. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk you through this three steps, read a scripture, and then give you time to either write or pray or talk to God. So let's start with purifying our hearts. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So take a couple minutes and ask the Lord if there's something you need to confess. Or is there a place in your life where there has been too much of you and not enough of God? Next, we're going to draw near to God. Psalm 86. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. We know that the Lord inhabits the praise of his people. So spend the next couple of minutes praising God and asking him to draw near. Last, we are going to spend time humbling ourselves. Psalm 86. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. And now ask the Lord to reveal to you if there's something you need to surrender to him. And ask him to show you what it looks like for you to live your life in humility. Lord, we thank you that you see us, that you desire to be with us. And God, that if we just ask, you will give us your wisdom. What a gift, Lord God. Help us to remember your character and who you are. God, and that we can trust your wisdom and that we can keep you on the throne, God, and not try to fight you for it. Thank you for loving us when we do. Forgive us when we do. God, thank you for the meal that we are all about to eat together and for these women who choose to come spend time in community, encouraging one another, growing together, 
and studying more of you. Bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies. And God, thank you for never leaving us. In your son's name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.